I'd like you to turn to Matthew 5. You'll find it on page 1426 in the Brown Bibles in front of you. We started a new series, and I'm anticipating we're going to spend quite a bit of time camped out here in these few chapters, Matthew 5 to 7, which, which contain some of the most famous sayings in the Bible, um, because these three chapters are the Sermon on the Mount, which Jesus delivered um, just by the Sea of Galilee, on a grassy slope to 5,000 or more people, I think. And uh, actually, maybe it's not numbered here. Maybe I just made that bit up. But anyway, we'll delete that, we'll delete that from the recording later. But um, Jesus preached a Sermon on the Mount. And to be honest, the reactions were mixed. People were amazed at this teaching. But this teaching has also um, overturned a lot of people's preconceptions and um, understandings of what religion is. It is literally a world-changing sermon. And uh, it begins with these eight or nine, it's disputed how many, but eight or nine sayings that are called the Beatitudes. Each one of them, a kind of bomb, but if taken in, put deep into the heart, causes massive life change. And um, every one of them, as I said last week, counterintuitive, countercultural. These are not the way we naturally think. So we're up to the second one this week. Let me just read... The first, um, we'll read the first 11 verses of Matthew 5. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, obviously, the impact of these sayings is not immediately apparent. You have to spend some time meditating and really chewing on what Jesus is saying here. But one of the ways into these, um, these eight or nine sayings is to understand that Jesus is, is talking here about happiness. This word Blessed can literally be translated happy. Happy are those who, um, with all these kind of unfolding ideas. I, I think the word blessed means a little bit more than that, but it does at root mean that. It has something to do with joy. It has something to do with happiness in the heart. And immediately, I, my guess is that most people these days are not going to churches for happiness. They're not hunting out churches, in this country at least, if you go up and down the length of this nation, people are not finding their way into churches expecting that they're going to find joy and happiness there. And there's a lot of reasons for that. But you have to understand as we start that what Jesus is, is doing here is he's promising something about the, the way of life that he's offering, about the truth, about what he is preaching here that is a route to joy, that there's something that you can experience in Christ in, in terms of joy and happiness that you can't find anywhere else. That's what we need to understand as very foundational to these things if we're going to find any way in. 
But immediately, we're looking at the second one here. It says, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And you have to realize that there seems to be some kind of a paradox or contradiction in what he's saying here. Happy, the happiest people on earth, he's saying, are those who, who are grieving, who experience sadness. Now, when you look at the way society operates, generally, the idea is that the more prosperous you are and the more sort of jolly you are, you're the most happy people. And immediately Jesus contradicts that with these first two sayings. Blessed are the poor in spirit, he says, and blessed are those who mourn. And we need to be asking ourselves, what is he preaching here? And how do we, how do we get into this saying? How do we understand its application to our own lives? Why is he promising blessing for those who mourn? Excuse me, I think I... St- no, we're good. How are we going to understand what he's promising here? I think you have to keep in mind a couple of things as we begin. The first is that he's not talking about any kind of mourning. I don't know if you've ever experienced really deep sadness in life on account of a a lost loved one or um, your dreams being shattered, all these things. These things, the Bible speaks into those in many other places in the scriptures, but it's not talking about that. In order to understand what he's talking about here, you have to realize that these sayings offer a kind of progressive teaching into what the religion is that he offers. And he began last week by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, which has to do with coming to God empty-handed, recognizing that you don't have any spiritual wealth before the living God, and that it's those whom God can, can give his righteousness to, his blessing to. It's the heart of the gospel. It's what we believe about the gospel message. So when he then says, blessed are those who mourn, We know because there's a connection with what he's saying here, what he's preaching here through these eight or nine sayings, that he's talking here about mourning in your spirit on account of the sin in your life, on account of the stuff we've done, which we know we feel guilty about, which we know is an offense to God, and we know also that we want to hide from other people. That's what he's talking about when he says, blessed are those who mourn. He's talking about that deep sadness on account of, Things not being right in your spirit. And that's what we want to think about this morning. Why then is he saying that these people are blessed? Why is he saying that those who mourn are the happiest people on earth? That's what we need to uncover. I want to give you three reasons. And we're going to begin here. The first of all is because in the biblical mindset, it's a good thing to experience sorrow for your sin. Now, we live in a a society where, generally speaking, expressions of sorrow and sadness and mourning and grief are typically covered up, aren't they? It's not something that we we wear or display to the world. And I can think of a a few reasons why, sort of evidences why I think that's the case. One of them is just when you think about the fact that so many people these days, when their, their lives are a mess, are going to doctors and receiving a diagnosis to label what it is they're experiencing. Now, I don't want to in any way diminish the realities that some people experience depression. And the difference between depression and sadness is that you can be sad about something, but depression, you're not depressed about anything. It's just a condition. It's kind of a way that your brain has sort of gone wrong for whatever reasons. 
But it seems to me that by labeling people with depression and with um, these sort of conditions, what's happening is that you're labeling these things as abnormal. So normal is somewhere in the middle where you're, you're generally getting along fine in life. But if you experience anything outside of what's normal, you're labeled and therefore this is something unusual, not, not right with you. And my question would be, well, what if, what if the things that people are experiencing are indicative of a deeper problem that's just being covered up by these labels? Another evidence I want to bring to your attention is just that so much of the society we live on is geared towards shallow entertainment and sort of facile um, escapism that's designed to help us just to, to, to get away from the realities of what we're feeling in, in our heart of hearts. And I don't know whether you are into watching Take Me Out on a Saturday night or what it is that you're into, but it seems to me that so much of the modern world is geared up in this way, that we, we listen to music nonstop because it does something to help us feel happy. It helps us to escape. The more extreme end, people do medicate and intoxicate themselves in order to cover up what's going on inside. But a lot of our entertainment is just designed as a kind of a cover for what's going on inside, that people are feeling deep problems, deep anxieties, deep frustrations, and a wrenching in their spirit that cannot be quenched, that cannot be solved, and that we're finding ways of just covering it up. And another thing, just that maybe a slightly more normal day-to-day experience for us all, is this, that generally speaking, when, when our emotions are, are fraught within us, we don't want to wear that in front of the world. We present our best face, even to the point where we can feel embarrassed and ashamed about the sadness that you can have in your heart, about, about the feeling that things aren't right in your spirit. You see this just in the way we present ourselves through social media, how you can get this kind of status anxiety. It happened to me this week. I was, I'd, we were at Cape Town, um, the airport, and I'd stood in front of this, um, this cutout of a South African rugby player who had these massive arms. And I, I don't know who he is. I, he didn't have a head for one thing. So, um, and I just sort of posed there for C. And I didn't, to be honest, I thought anyone would realize this was not me. But immediately after I put it on Twitter, a couple of friends had got back to me and sort of said, man, you are looking buff these days. And they, they really were, they thought it was me. And I was, I was fine for those guys, but then I was thinking about all the other people on Twitter. I don't have that many followers, but the people on Twitter I don't really know. I'm thinking, these guys are going to think I'm just the most big-headed guy posing in an airport, wearing this rugby shirt for my wife and whatever. So I immediately just deleted it when I thought, some people think this is actually my body. But you know what it is when you're, you're presenting your best face forward. You do it at work. You do it on your social media status. That there is this, this, this effort to appear happy. To appear like you've got everything together. That's the society we live in. And one of the, the saddest parts about this is I think it's infected the church as well. The church in this country is, has experienced some pressure factors. Shrinking numbers, not so much in London, but nationwide. Shrinking numbers of people have been, have been avoiding church. And not just the fact that the pews are empty, but also the fact that the message that we preach has a dissonance. It kind of sounds out of harmony with what people want to hear these days. So it's very hard to mention certain words like sin and judgment and hell and all this stuff 
and say it seriously without sounding like a complete fruit loop in the modern society that we live in, right? So the church has recognized that there's people out there, they want this kind of quick fix, they want this happiness. And so as a result, I think churches have sort of tried to conform. They tried to make what they do and the way that they conduct themselves appeal to this society that we live in, this sort of shallow, western, celebrity-obsessed society. And you see it in a few ways. You see it in the way that churches cut out the negative from the message. You know, if we, if we just don't talk about the harsh stuff, maybe people will want to keep coming. You see it in the way that some churches mimic the, the kind of entertainment culture, the fluffy, positive... Um, like bells and whistles sort of enjoyment factor that you can have in other forms of public gatherings, entertainment, and all that stuff. Now, I don't want to sound overly critical, but my my problem with it is this, that it shows that even Christians don't really believe what Jesus is saying here. That they don't really believe that when he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, that Jesus was offering something here that can be utterly life-changing and profoundly powerful. And so my conviction is that as Christians, we need to step back and look at the reality of what he's preaching here, what he's offering, what he's promising, and realize that you can think of it this way, that a first rule in diagnosis is always, a first rule in in treating a condition is always accurate diagnosis, isn't it? And if we're looking at our own hearts and we're, we're living in a society where there is such massive, widespread um, struggle that it's indicative of a deeper problem that has to be addressed. And I'm hoping that this is going to resonate with a few of you here. That there are, I, it certainly speaks to me, that there are, there's a reason why we can feel like things are out of joint in our hearts. We can't just ignore it or plaster over it or forget about it. We have to look deeper. What is going on here? And how does this saying that Jesus uttered speak into our situation? And so my first point, I just want you to understand, is that Jesus here is commending the right kind of sorrow that you can feel in your heart. And it tells me it's good news. There are four reasons why I want to say this is an excellent thing. It can be a very good thing to experience. The first is that it means you have a conscience. The Bible talks about people who have seared their consciences, like taking a hot iron and, and, and placing it on your conscience so that the nerves become numb and ineffective. I think it's possible to so live a life that is headlong against what God wants that eventually your conscience stops working. But if you're feeling this this disjunction, this kind of brokenness inside, then it means that, you, 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 that something's right in your conscience. The second reason why I say it's good news is this, that it means that God is speaking to you. When In the book of Romans, when Paul's talking about society and the way that God's revealed himself to people through creation, through his power in creation and whatever else, he says that people can get to a point where they are so, so determined to ignore the truth about God that they, he says they exchange the truth about God. They, they, they replace it with something else. 
They suppress it, they squeeze it, they push it down so that it's no longer there, like trying to hold a float under the water. He says what happens at that point is they get, they get so good at it that they get to a point where God stops speaking to them. He puts it this way. He says that God, he gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, the dishonoring of their bodies, and so on. And what Paul's saying is this, that you can be so determined in your, in your effort to, to, to ignore or suppress or forget God that eventually God, God just lets go. He just sort of lets you drift, and you no longer have any awareness of him. That's the darkest, that's the most horrible place to be in Scripture, is to, to be without hope that God has stopped speaking to you. Which is why the Bible says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. If you, if you are aware that he's speaking, you must act today. But when you're feeling this, this kind of, what Jesus is talking here about, this mourning in your spirit, not only does it mean your conscience is working, it also means that God is speaking to you. It also means that you, you become aware that things aren't right in your life. It follows that if God made us, he made us for purpose and he made us for himself. And if we don't know God, then there's something, a gaping hole, something utterly broken about our existence, our life. But when we feel this, this emptiness, this sadness, it, it, it's indicative that there, there is something not quite right about the life that you're living. I'm not just speaking to anyone here who's not a Christian. I'm speaking to you if you are a Christian. You can walk away from God or you can, you can, you can ignore him for a season. And you'll feel this. You'll absolutely feel this. And I'll just finally say on this point that it's good to experience this sorrow, that it gives you hope. It means that God can work in you, that he, he can begin a process of change, of fulfilling what Jesus says here. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he says. That's the first thing. It's good to experience this deep sorrow. Secondly, It's a genuine sorrow for sin that God is looking for. It's genuine sorrow. What do I mean? Well, when Paul was writing one of his letters to a crazy church in Corinth who had all kinds of stuff going on, he he really chastised them. And their reaction was amazing. And they start... They really start changing. They were, they were completely messed up church at one stage. And they start changing in response to his, his sort of pastoral exhortations. And then he writes this to them in 2 Corinthians 7. He says, Godly grief produces a repentance or a change of mind that leads to salvation without regret. Whereas worldly grief produces death. He says that just feeling sorrow on account of the way your life is is not enough. That it's possible to feel a right kind of sorrow and a wrong kind of sorrow. And the wrong kind of sorrow is going to have a number of characteristics. It's going to be, first of all, a, a sorrow for the consequences of the things you've done wrong. But just the consequences. So you're sorry about what you've done just because of the fallout. Just because of you've hurt so, so, some people or because you've been found out or something like that. It's sorry for the consequences. Or it might be... Um, it might be sorrow because of how you feel, because you feel, you just think, oh man, I've just done this stuff and I feel so wretched, and you just get into a pit of self-pity and almost self-loathing at times or anger with yourself. And listen, that, that's not, that can be part of the journey, but that's not the whole picture. This kind of worldly sorrow Paul's talking about as well is, 
certainly for people who, who call themselves Christians, is going to be is going to express itself in a kind of shallow effort to make things right. A kind of a show to placate people, to, to kind of put on a show and pretend that you are, um, that you're genuinely sorry for what you're doing. In, in the book of Joel, God is speaking to his people who, you know, they... They've got all this, these ways of getting right with God. They've got their sacrifices and they've got their, their temple. And he's just fed up with them. And he says, you need to return to me with all your heart. With fasting, with weeping, with mourning. And rend your heart and not your garments. You see, they were, whenever an Israelite felt like they were you know, beyond the pale and they've got to repent before God, they would take their, their garments, and you think a garment costed a lot. You could, there were no Primarchs in those days. These things were expensive things, and they would start ripping it before God. And he says, I don't care how many clothes you rip. I'm not just looking for this show of sorrow for what you've done. I want, I want something that's real. He says, I want you to rend or to rip your heart and not just your garments. Well, if that's, if that's worldly sorrow, what does... What does godly sorrow look like? What is the genuine sorrow that God is looking for in all of us when we, are, when we know we've offended him, when we know we're in the wrong? It's something that anybody who's come to Christ, anybody who has crossed the line of faith, anybody who's become a Christian has experienced at some point in that journey. There's a story in, in the book of Luke when... Jesus goes to a Pharisee's house. It's a little bit like going to Lambeth Palace down the road. And he is hobnobbing, hobnobbing with the elite. It wasn't, really, it wasn't really Jesus' natural crowd. He didn't really like to hang out with the, kind of the equivalent of the bishops and stuff because he, he tended to think that they were hypocrites. But on this occasion, he's invited for dinner at this, this residence of this man who's a Pharisee. And partway through the dinner, this woman bursts in. And she's, she's kind of the equivalent of, um, of a prostitute or um, you know, somebody who's just crawled in from one of these really seedy joints down in, in Vauxhall or Brixton or somewhere like that. And she's, Lambeth's not too far. She's found her way. She knows Jesus is there. And she comes in and she breaks up the party because she is creating an absolute scene. And when she comes to Jesus at this dinner party... You know, his feet would have been uncovered. Um, they were sandals in those days. He's taken off his sandals on the way in. And she begins to, to weep on his feet. And she begins so many, so many floods of tears that his feet are becoming wet. And they're dusty and dirty feet from walking around. And she begins wiping the dirt off with her own hair and then pouring on this expensive oil on his feet. A little bit later in Luke in Luke 15, Jesus tells a story about a kid, basically, who, there are two brothers, and the younger brother decides that he wants, to, he wants the wealth of his dad. And he asks his dad for his inheritance early, which, you know, if you were to go and ask your parents, I think they would be slightly offended, but in that culture, it was the equivalent of saying, I wish that you were dead. So he, he takes... All that's his, because his father just says, okay, be gone. He runs off into another country, it says, and he just squanders it in what's called reckless living. He's 
prostitutes, it's partying, it's all the rest of it. And he gets to the point where he is, he's run out of money and there's a famine in the land. And then Jesus says this. This is a turning point in the story. It says he came to his senses. It was like one day he just woke up and thought, what am I doing? This isn't really helping. It's not, I'm not finding the, the happiness that I was seeking in the lifestyle that I've got. And in fact, I'm in the darkest place I've ever been in my life. I was happier when I was at home with my dad. And now I'm feeding pigs in an, on a farm and hungry to eat what they're eating. It says he comes to his senses and he decides he's going to go back to his dad and he's going to, he's going to make this little speech about how he can just become one of his dad's servants. And what I'm wanting you to see is that these guys are experiencing the kind of grief that anyone who genuinely comes to Christ will experience at some point. It's that deep sorrow that knows you've, you've made a mess of your life and that God can fix it. You see it again in the story that we looked at last week, in the story of the, the tax collector. When this guy, he goes up to temple, and this guy is the equivalent... You know how a few years ago when the Telegraph broke those stories about the expensive scandals, and the amount of hatred that was being poured out on these MPs for their reckless spending and living... Was, was unbelievable. I mean, I think politics was, was so broken at that point. And this is how people regarded these tax collectors because they didn't just do this in secret, they did it openly. They stole from the people that they were getting money from. And this guy, he goes up to temple and he's not doing this for show. He's not doing it for anybody else in the room. He just goes and prays before God and says, be merciful to me, a sinner. He's reached the end. He knows that the way he's been living is not right, and he's feeling this grief, this sadness, this depression, this brokenness in his heart. This kind of genuine sorrow always precedes a genuine coming to God in faith. It has to. It's not just true for people who aren't Christians, it's also true for people who are Christians. The Bible talks about this godly grief being true for people who have been walking with God and they've slipped into some kind of sin which has dogged you and become a habit or you've made this one huge mistake which you can never forget, you can never put behind you. Or it's the thousand little things because when you're a Christian, your conscience doesn't get easier. In some ways, it gets a little bit more sharp because the more you know Christ, the more perfect He is to you, the more you feel the tenderness of the things that you're doing wrong. And so Christians experience this grief on, a, on account of their own sin. This is what we're seeing happening in Psalm 32, which Eugene read right at the beginning. When David says, he says, when I kept silent, in other words, when I tried to hide my sin from God, he says, my bones wasted away. It was like he had a disease that was rotting his body. So so hurt was he in his own spirit. So much anguish was he feeling inside. He says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. This is the kind of grief that God is talking about that you can experience and that Jesus is talking about here. Blessed are those who mourn. And this is my problem also with, you know, the, when churches don't, when they don't, 
talk about the negative side of what we, what we believe. You know, if you just go around telling people God is love, but don't tell people that God, there are certain things that God hates, then you're not getting to the root of the issue. If you go around telling people that God has a wonderful plan for your life, which I believe is true, but you don't tell them that that plan begins with you dying, then you're never really accurately diagnosing the problem. Because Jesus says you can't come to him unless you die, first of all. It is this two-punch where Jesus says he wants us to be cut down. He says, blessed are those who mourn. He wants us to experience the grief on account of our wrongdoing. Because it's only through that that you can experience the hope of change. And this brings us on to our final point. That with this sorrow, this genuine sorrow, can come the deepest comfort. When Jesus said, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, he was, he was, he was uttering a promise. This is not um, a vague hope. This is an absolute promise. He says, those who mourn for their sin, they can be comforted. You need to see that what we're talking about here, thanks Eugene, the pesky urn, it's annoying. <laughs> this comfort that Jesus is talking about here, this joy, it's not something I believe that you can find anywhere else. It's not a kind of temporary plaster over the deep sickness that we have in our soul. Like, doing some course or taking some antidepressant or filling your life with happy, bubbly people who lift you up. It's not a kind of denial. I think a lot of people are living in the denial of, what, of the brokenness they feel inside. That if they just... And, and, and we're told time and time again that by the world that people don't want to hear about our problems. So if you're feeling guilt and shame and loneliness, you're not going to find many sympathetic voices out there. So the thing is just to cover it up and pretend it's not there. It's not a, a 12-step program either. Jesus never came along and said, listen, here's, here's your, your 12 steps to recovery from whatever it is you're struggling with. He didn't, he didn't come like that. He came along as a savior and as a hero and as a rescuer, to deliver us from the things we can't fix, not the things we can. So when Jesus says here, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted, what is he talking about in that comfort? It's something that the Bible talks about, but which so often Christians misunderstand. As the deepest joy that can become through, through knowing God. In Psalm 16, it says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures evermore. David, in his best moments, who wrote that psalm, knew that when he was walking with God, he knew pleasure and delight that didn't compare with all the other successes that he'd had in life. And if anybody had made a success of life at this point when he read this, he was that man. 
He was the most admired warrior in the history of Israel. He was the most successful king. He was, he was a conqueror of nations. He had wealth beyond imagination. He says, all of it is rubbish in comparison with what it is to know you. He says, at your right hand are pleasures evermore. This is what one preacher, John Piper, calls Christian hedonism. It's knowing that the type of Christianity the Bible talks about is a happy thing. It's pleasure. It's joy. It's healing. And friends, this is something that you can experience at the very beginning of the Christian life. I'm convinced that when that woman who I was describing earlier came to Jesus and was weeping on him, that what she was going through was not just grief. It says that she, she began to weep and wet his feet with her tears and wipe them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with ointment. But this isn't just the display of, of brokenness. She'd never have walked into that house. She would never have come to him or felt the boldness as the kind of person she was to approach a man like Jesus, the most admired preacher at that moment. What was going on was that she didn't only feel sadness, she felt acceptance. She felt love. She felt that the things that she'd done could be wiped away and she knew that if she had any hope of joy, it was going to come from Jesus. It's also something that you can experience in an ongoing way in the Christian life. In 1 John, John's talking to the Christians and he's saying, he's saying, listen, as Christians, you shouldn't be people who walk in sin. Like we need to be, we need to be becoming more like Jesus every day. We need to be changing. But he says, when you sin, he says, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. The worst part about knowing that your life isn't right is that you can feel what the the Bible talks about and describes as a feeling of being dirty. The word that's used in the Bible is, is feeling defiled. And it's not just the things you've done. Sometimes it's the things that have been done to you. Whether this is before you became a Christian or even during your Christian life. But the word that John says here is that you just need to come and confess Remember how David said, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. It's that unwillingness to turn to Christ that will keep you in that dark place. But it's when you know that he is love, that he is truth, that he is hope, that he is light, and that he has died for you, that you can be changed. Some of the words that I know I keep coming back to and which are of so much power and comfort, are these ones that Jesus said. He said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden. So people who feel like you've been straining in life and things aren't going well. It's like you're walking through treacle. You labor and you're heavy laden. He says, I will give you rest. You remember when God created the world. He made it in six days and then he rested on the seventh. The hope that he was holding out to us was that to know him and to walk in peace with him was to walk in a place of rest where your spirit is at rest within you. 
where that lack of harmony is, is fixed. And Jesus says, you have to come to him to get that. He says, you need to take my yoke upon you. Like the two animals walking in a field with a yoke across the shoulder. He says, you need to come alongside me. Because he said, my yoke is easy. Why? Because he's carrying the burden. And that's how he puts it in Isaiah. In that passage which was written 700 years before Jesus, predicting Jesus' death, predicting the fact that he would die on behalf of people's sins. It describes it like this, in the past tense, but really predicting the future. He says, surely, surely he has borne our griefs. And listen to these words in the light of what Jesus said. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who experience grief, who experience sorrow. It says here, surely he has borne, he's carried our griefs and carried our sorrows. And we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. The pain, the grief that Jesus experienced when the nails went through his hands and his feet and his body was lashed to shreds and the spear went up into his heart. It says he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, shalom, rest. This is the great exchange. This is why Jesus says you need to come under his yoke because you can strain and strain and strain away for the rest of your life and you will never find rest. You might find temporary relief. You might find a quick fix, but you'll know it will never really sort the problem out, not the deeper problem. He says, you need to come under my yoke because my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And the yoke of Jesus, where you walk side by side with him, is where you, you give him all of your sin and all of your grief and all of your sickness and all of your heart sorrow. And he gives you his joy. That's what it means to believe in Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian. And it's not just for people who don't know him now. It's for people who have been walking with him, but you've been straining. You've been pulling at the reins, as it were, pulling away from him. And soon enough, you will feel the chafing and the pain of what it is not to walk in step with Jesus and with his spirit. I want to pray now, but as I close, can I just ask you a few questions? Just for you to reflect on it, in a couple of minutes, Eugene's going to come and lead us in communion to close the service, and um, Chloe's going to come back up as well. But I want to ask you a few questions, and I, it's not for my benefit. This is for you to be honest with yourself. Do you, in your honest moments, know this, this sadness that Jesus is describing this morning? Blessed are those who mourn. And can you acknowledge that it's God who's provoking your spirit, that he's, he's doing something inside you to awaken you, to help you, like the prodigal son, to come to your senses? And do you want to do that? Do you want to come back to him? Father, I thank you that you gave words of life that when your son, when Jesus preached, when he taught, taught us these things, he was teaching us 
a way to life, a way to know a fulfilling life and a, a joyful life. Lord, all of us have known the self-loathing and the frustration and the awareness that things are not right. But I thank you, Lord, that it's been our experience that time and time again when we come to you, that you offer comfort, that you offer joy, and that there is life in you. And I ask, Lord, that you would so move us in our hearts that, Lord, we would be able to lay behind us what the Bible describes as those sins that so easily entangle all those little rebellions in our heart against you or the lifestyle of being set against your way, your plan and bring us back. And Lord, that not only would you draw people back today, but Lord, you'd also give them, even immediately, even right now, a comfort like they've never experienced before. As they confess, as they speak, that you be at work in a mighty way. Amen.